Jeremiah chapter 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your scriptures, your word, your word that is truth to us. And we desire, Lord God, to know your truth, to live by your truth, to stand in your truth. It is the very truth that Jesus said to Pilate, he came to testify of. And that those who are of the truth would hear him. And so, Lord, we desire to hear you. And we desire, Lord, to stay on the side of truth, even in these last days. When there is such a battle for truth and such a battle of world views. And I thank you, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we can know your truth. For indeed, he is the spirit of truth, as your word encourages us. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of receiving truth from your word tonight. May it be kept in our minds and in our hearts and spoken through our lips until the day of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We are well in the midst of the section of Jeremiah's prophecy that is called the Book of Consolation being chapters 30 through 33. As Judah was soon to go into captivity for their rebelliousness and their sins against their God, the Lord was offering them words of comfort and hope through these four particular chapters during that dark time where soon they would be dealt with for their sins. That dark time encouraging them that there would be a restoration, 
A restoration not only for the people of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, but for the land of Israel as well. So now as we enter into chapter 32, we see that the content of the whole chapter is centered on one event in the prophet Jeremiah's life. But Jeremiah begins with a time frame. And he begins with a, a time stamp on his letter or on his prophecy. As we see there in verse 1. So it brings us back to review a little bit of where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. So by this time, Jeremiah had already given many prophecies concerning <coughs> the restoration of Israel <coughs> to her land. <coughs> and this chapter itself documents what happened and how Jeremiah responded. Well, first of all, the prophet dates his account for us. The events described in this passage actually occurred in 587. And, and there's you know a little tendency to be between 587 and 586 B.C., which was the tenth year of King Zedekiah's reign and the eighteenth year of the reign of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. So Jeremiah makes that clear. This time date stamp lets us know the people were only a year from the completion of the third and final assault by the Babylonians on Judah and Jerusalem. One note that we can remember, I hope, it's a hint, is that Zedekiah served as king or reigned as king for 11 years. If this is the 10th the year, then there's only one year left in his reign. And for purposes of review again, the first invasion of the Babylonians was in 606 or 605 B.C., thereabouts, when they took the best of the best captive to Babylon. Daniel was a part of that uh, captivity that went to Babylon the first time. The second invasion took place in 597 or 596 B.C. And then in 587 or 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar finally had had enough of Judah's puppet kings that he himself had placed in Judah. Zedekiah being the fourth and the last one of these puppet kings. And they were, these kings were a rebellious sort to begin with. Uh, they were rebellious against God and then they would be rebellious against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So Zedekiah came against Nebuchadnezzar and he decided, uh, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar did, to destroy the city and to take the remainder of the people captive to Babylon. As you'll be seeing in the text, or in the text you're going to see that, that uh, the siege mounds are going to be built against Jerusalem. This is the year that that is all taking place so that the year later, or in a year's time, the siege against Jerusalem would begin. So at this point we turn our attention to Jeremiah then and his circumstances during this tenth year of Zedekiah's reign. Apparently all of the prophet's fervent appeals, the appeals that Jeremiah himself made before the king, before the royals, the, before the, uh, uh, the people that were in, in charge there in Judah, 
all of his all of his fervent appeals had been wasted really on Zedekiah because the king's heart was bent on departure from God now think about that for a moment this king who was supposedly in the line of kings through Josiah was bent against God his heart there were times in our own lives that we lived in such a way that we were bending ourselves away from God but with Zedekiah he had long departed from the Lord and it's sad because he was the king of God's people in Judah the last of the kings of Judah. But even with the way that Jeremiah preached his message, as we have seen over the past 10 to 12 chapters of Jeremiah, there wasn't any outright act of persecution on Zedekiah's part against him for nine years that we can know of or that we can see in his text. There was, there was some persecution that we talked about uh, that Jeremiah had gone through, but not directly coming from Zedekiah. But in that tenth year of his reign, in the tenth year of Zedekiah's reign, with Nebuchadnezzar breathing down his back and, and building the siege mounds against Jerusalem, Zedekiah then turned against Jeremiah's words. There are those who say that uh, for a time Zedekiah toward Jeremiah was, was very much like Herod was toward the message of Jesus and then later of John the Baptist but there was that tenth year and Zedekiah turned against the prophecies that Jeremiah had given and decided to silence him for weakening the hands of the people of Jerusalem by declaring that their defense of the city would be in vain let's, let's read again the text in verses 1-5 through five. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison. So that tells us there that Jeremiah had been arrested and thrown into prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. Therefore there was some kind of a stockade in the palace of the king. Verse 3, for Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the kingdom of Babylon. Why do you say this? We've had our own prophets. Remember this. They had prophets that they listened to. And what were those prophets telling them? Those prophets were telling them, Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be good. There's going to be peace. Let's look at the peace that we're going to have. And let's realize that everything's going to be nice and rosy and cheery. So Jeremiah said, no, that's not the word from God. You've rebelled against God. You've lived in a life of idolatry and sin and rebelliousness. And so now Zedekiah says, why are you preaching this kind of message? I'll give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall take it. And then you speak about me. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans. You know, kings were proud people. They were proud. They didn't like to have anybody tell them that there, anything was going to happen to them. 
For the most part, if anybody did that, they, of course, that particular prophet or person would lose his head. But not Jeremiah. I believe that Zedekiah had a tremendous fear of Jeremiah. But nonetheless, he arrests him. And he says, Why have you said that I shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak to him face to face and see him eye to eye? That's a very interesting thing. Because when he is taken to Babylon, his eyes will be taken out. And then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah, why are you doing these things? You're a, you're a traitor to Judah. You are going to be in the stockade, in prison. Now let's consider Jeremiah's personal interest in all that was taking place. No doubt Jeremiah was facing the same terrible circumstances as everyone else in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem going through everything that everybody else was going through, in other words. But the greatest difference between Jeremiah and everybody else, the greatest difference was that the prophet remained faithful to God through it all. The prophet Jeremiah remained faithful to God through it all. Through what was happening with Zedekiah. What was happening outside of the walls with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And still his faith would be challenged to the brink. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have experienced your faith being challenged to the brink? You don't have to raise your hand. I think we should all raise our hands. We've all had to face that particular uh, struggle and trial. And especially now in the times in which we live. We should realize how the world, the flesh, and the devil, those three things that we battle each and every day of our lives, how much they are trying to erase the lines of reality and truth in the days in which we live. That puts a challenge to our faith, doesn't it? That puts a tremendous challenge to the way we're going to live for Christ. And so, as our faith is often challenged in the days and times in which we live, so Jeremiah was going through this. And, and now he's being held prisoner in the palace stockade, arrested on the charge of treason, simply for preaching that God's judgment would fall on the people. For he was truly a prophet of God. Take a moment and consider the desperate circumstances in which Jeremiah found himself as a prisoner. The situation couldn't have been worse. I must tell you this, prisoners in those days are not like prisoners in these days, especially in our country. It might be in other countries, but not in this country. Some guys like to go to prison because they know at least they'll get three square meals and they'll be able to watch HDTV. And have all kinds of other amenities. It wasn't that way in the time of the prophets. It wasn't that way, of course, in the time of the apostles. So consider that once a person is put into prison, there's, there, there, there are many, many situations that, that we 
ourselves wouldn't really fully understand. He would be on the verge of starvation, being put into prison. He'd be at the point of dying of thirst. He'd be at that point of seeing people die daily of starvation, thirst, and disease. Seeing his neighbors commit all kinds of lawless acts in in an attempt to survive. Being surrounded and threatened by a brutal enemy. These were all of the things that Jeremiah was having to deal with, along with everything else going on with Nebuchadnezzar and with Zedekiah. And we'd all have to say that Jeremiah was in this terrible situation, facing the worst circumstances imaginable, and yet, look at the prophet. Look at the prophet. No matter what it cost him personally, he remained faithful to the Lord. No matter what it cost him personally, he remained faithful to the Lord. To God. He courageously proclaimed God's word to both the rulers and the people during the crisis. Even in the direst of conditions, his, his faith in God remained strong and unbreakable. And please don't say, well, it was because he was a prophet. Do we need to go all the way back to chapter 1? And the fear that Jeremiah had before God, when God was calling him, and he stumbled and stuttered his way to God when God called him, and he said, I'm just a, just a youth. Do we clamor and, stub, and stumble over our own words when God calls us to do something? And realize, you know what? That if we're going to surrender to Him and surrender to His will and surrender to His will, His ways and His hand in, in taking us through a certain situation because He's called us to do it, you know that He's going to do it anyway, what, no matter what tool He uses, no matter what instrument He uses. Isaiah didn't stand before God in Isaiah chapter 6, and when he finally receives that cleansing from his tongue and, and, and his lips and his, and his heart, doesn't say to God, here I am, send Him. Or send somebody else. God sent him. Because he said, here I am, send me. He remained strong and unbreakable because his heart was surrendered to God. His heart was surrendered in humility to God. Over the many months... Even the couple of years that we've been in the book of Jeremiah, how we've seen how Jeremiah has struggled with God, yet never once has he left God, never once has he, has he failed to trust God when God finally makes it clear what he's doing. But you see, that's even going to bring him to that brink again of, of that challenge of his faith. But at this point, he's, he, he's strong, he's unbreakable, and it is a lesson for us, because no matter what conditions or circumstances Uh, may confront us. And we're going to confront these situations and those situations are going to confront us in this day and time in which we live. We must continue to trust in the Lord. We all know Proverbs 3 verse 5. We memorized it together a few months ago. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Not trust in flesh, not trust in man, not trust in the things of man, not trust in the world, not trust in anything but in the Lord Himself. 
Sooner or later, trouble will confront us all. Financial difficulties, family troubles, illnesses, school problems, diseases, broken relationships, accidents, immoral behaviors, job losses, unjust decisions, strong temptations, death of loved ones. We've all faced it. We've all been there. That are, that, those are the things that confront us each and every day. And it would be nice if we only confronted one of those problems on that list. Sometimes we have to confront more than one. More than two. Is it because we have no faith? Is it because we're in sin? Is it because what we are living in a fallen world? We are living in a world that needs salvation, and its only salvation is going to be through Jesus Christ. If we have found it, then we have the strength, not by our power or might, but by his spirit, we have the strength to confront those issues. We have the strength to confront those circumstances, no matter what they may be. In the time of great trouble, the shepherd king David would sing these words, 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 7. It would become a psalm as well. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. This is where you all come in. In whom I will <laughs> That was good. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. I tell you, that sounds like today. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple and my cry entered His ears. And later on in the same chapter of 2 Samuel 22, verse 29, David said, For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness, for, for by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and He makes my way perfect. In other words, He makes my way complete. God makes our way complete if we trust in Him. Psalm 7, verse 1, a meditation of David. We're told there a little uh, thing that says, we, which he's saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjamite. He says, Oh, my Lord God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. David knew very well that he would confront problems and situations and circumstances that were beyond his control, but he knew that he could call upon God to be his strength and his deliverer. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. Sound familiar? That's 2 Samuel 32. Psalm 18, My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We could go on and on. There are 126 references to trust in the scriptures, but we don't have all the time. You'll have to look them up yourself. Troubling circumstances lie along the path of every human being. 
when these times of trouble come, we must have strong faith in the Lord. We must trust Him, believe in Him, hang on to His promises. That's why we have His, His Word. That's why we should come to church with a Bible. That's why we should go home with one. Don't go home with one of the churches. Go home with your own. But go home with a Bible and read it and live it and, 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 and don't, let it, don't let it out of your life. This is how we should be. This and this. I mean, all over us. I mean, this is, this is life. Why do we run into so many troubles and problems in this life? And then when we can't understand why these things are happening, we cry out to God, God hears us, God helps us, and then we run away from Him again. Rather than stay with Him, stay in His love, stay in His mercy, stay in His grace, stay in His truth, stay in His Word. Why do we run? He's promised to deliver to deliver us through all trials, hardships and misfortunes of life. Listen to God's wonderful promises. Psalm 34, verses 17 to 20. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Folks, that doesn't mean He keeps you from them. That means He takes you through them. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Here's the, I think this is one of the keys. This is one of the, the secrets, if, as it were. That's not a secret anymore, because it's not a mystery anymore, because God's revealed it to us. You know what it is? We have a broken heart, a humble heart, before God. Because He saves such that have a contrite spirit. We have sorrow when we sin against God. And we're broken. That's why, that's why David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, these thou wilt not despise. Verse 19 of Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You see, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That, of course, is a prophecy of... Jesus on the cross. Jesus Himself in John 14, verses 1-4 through says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to Myself. You see, we've been going through all the circumstances of the world, and the Lord says, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come and get you and take you home. The right time. And then he says, Receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, quotes the words of Jesus to him, when Jesus says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here, Paul does not say, I have no infirmities at all. I'm a Christian. Nothing's wrong with me. He says, wait a minute. If we don't have any of these things, we better question where we stand. 
we better question where we are with God. He says, Most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you see that list? That's the reality. Infirmities and reproaches. Now when he says I take pleasure, it doesn't mean that he just loves pain. He's looking beyond the pain. He's looking beyond the reproach. He's looking beyond the persecution and the distress. Why? For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I know that I'm strong. Why? Because Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Well, getting back to Jeremiah. With his knowledge in mind that he's been trusting the Lord and he's faithful to the Lord. A very strange directive is given to Jeremiah by the Lord. As a matter of fact, some would say that this was a daring, illogical, even an irrational and an insane command as the city was about to be destroyed. But it was a spark. It was a spark that ignited the heart of the prophet. Look at verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold... Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you. Now remember, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, in other words, your cousin, buy my field, which is in Anathoth. Where is Anathoth? Anathoth is where Jeremiah is from, outside of Jerusalem. Anathoth is, is Jeremiah's town. He says, buy my field, which is in Anatot, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. And then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord. So he comes to visit Jeremiah in prison, and he said, and he said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anatot, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours, but buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. In other words, he receives a word from God that says, your cousin's coming, and he's going to want you to buy a field. The implication is, when he comes, buy it. Yeah. Okay, uh, you know, gee, I hope that's the Lord that I'm listening to. And all of a sudden, here comes Hanamel, and Hanamel comes to visit him in prison, and he says, I have a field. I don't need you to buy it. He says, now I know. It was from the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was an Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money. I guess there was one thing that they could do in that prison, is, I guess, hold on to some money. Seventeen shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. So they're going through the, the normal, careful uh, uh, steps to make sure that this was uh, a good deal. And I, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Nariah, the uh, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son. Baruch, the uh, first time we see him mentioned here, is actually kind of like a secretary for... Uh, for the prophet uh, Jeremiah. 
and uh, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So there were a lot of witnesses to this particular thing that happened. <clears throat> so, now, we began with the understanding that Jeremiah had a, a very strong faith and trust in God. But not only did Jeremiah have this strong, unbreakable faith in God, but he also had a confident faith in the Lord. A confident faith in the Lord, given the bizarre request that was given to him. He confidently trusted the Lord. Now at this point, Hanamel is the one who comes and he says, that's confirmation. But he, he's confident in the Lord. And that confident faith would lead to that confirmation of faith that Jeremiah needed. So you see, the Lord had told Jeremiah that his cousin Hanamel was coming with an offer to sell property in their home of Anathoth. And if Am let's just say that Hanamel had just shown up suddenly, this before he would even hear what God had spoken to him. If he had just shown up suddenly, and he's in prison, and Hanamel comes to visit him, the prophet would have certainly refused the offer. Are you crazy? I'm in prison. I may be dead before tonight. So I'm not going to buy any land. But you see, God spoke first. I mean, the property, was, which was a field, was already in the hands of the Babylonians. Look at, look at all the, the, the negatives here, you know. Look at all the minus signs. That, that particular part of the land, which was just in the tribe of Benjamin, not far from where they were, but it was already in the hands of, of, of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were already there. They were there one year before they would siege the whole city. So they had this area. Jeremiah's in prison. The future of the nation was bleak, at best, to say the least. <laughs> Jeremiah more than likely couldn't possibly live another 70 years. Now why do I mention that? Because the promise was from God that 70 years after they're taken into captivity, they'd come back. Well, Jeremiah wasn't going to have 70 more years. So if Hanamel had just come with the, with the offer to buy the land, he said, you're crazy. But isn't that, what faith all, isn't that what faith is all about? Obeying God in spite of what we see. Obeying God in spite of what we feel. Obeying God in spite of what may happen. If God truly speaks to our hearts and we trust the Lord by faith, isn't that what faith is all about? It's well been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. Think about that for a moment. I really like this statement. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. That certainly gives faith a different little perspective, doesn't it? And Jeremiah's actions here illustrate that maxim. They also illustrate the biblical definition of faith, because if you look at Hebrews 11, verse 1, we're told, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, understand this. All the people that were in the court of the prison were allowed to see this transaction take place. And the people who heard Jeremiah's purchase would have considered it an investment in worthless real estate. <clears throat> Then what other thing would have happened? They would have said, well, didn't, you know, he's over here saying that God had told him to go ahead and buy this field. So now we're going to have to test whether he is a true prophet of God. 
So there, there are a lot of ideas going on around him in that court of that prison. By the way, remember this, that a person who is a child of God, or a person who is a, a, an instrument of God, for example, the prophets of God, the true prophets of God, just like the apostles, like Paul who was in prison, when he was in prison in Rome, or when he was in prison in, in, in Philippi, who, was, who were really the prisoners? Not Paul, not Silas. It was the people who didn't know God. And when he preached the gospel to them, what did they do? They got saved and got, you know, they, they finally, you know, got free. His captors were the ones who were the prisoners. Because they were prisoners bound to this world, to the flesh, and to the enemy. So Jeremiah is in prison. Everybody in that courtyard, whether they were captors or just people in, in work for the palace of the king, they were all there, but who was the real prisoner? They were. Why? Because they didn't believe God. They didn't trust in God. So they, they were the ones that said, well, you know, he's buying worthless real estate. Some of them were laughing at, at uh, Jeremiah. Others were shaking their heads in disbelief. And still others were thinking he was crazy. But Hanamel's motives were sincere. Because some have thought, well, Hanamel came, you know, to say, you know, well, here, buy this land, and we're going to test you to see if you're really a prophet. But, but, but that's not the case, because he told Jeremiah that, if, if, that it was the prophet's right and duty to buy that field, in verse 7. And this was an appeal to what was known as the kinsman redeemer, or the kinsman redeemer rights, or the law of redemption. Now, the law of redemption is found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, that says, if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Later on, as you read through that whole passage in Leviticus 25, you realize that, that God made it for, the, for, for family to keep the land of the family, within the family. So the law simply stated the families were to keep property in the family. And when some family member needed to sell a piece of property, he was to offer it to the nearest family member. So Hanamel comes to his cousin, Jeremiah, and offers it to him. And so Jeremiah bought the land just as the Lord had instructed him to do, as we read in verses 9 through 13. He paid Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for the field, signed and sealed the deed, and had it witnessed. A lot of witnesses there. And since he was in prison, he gave the deed to his close friend and personal secretary, Baruch, for safekeeping, verses 11 and 12. And also, it is important to note that Jeremiah made sure that everyone in the prison courtyard saw, the courtyard saw him purchase the property. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 13. And notice that it says, Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now verse 15 is very important, very key here. Because it's first of all coming from God and it's talking about the land of Israel. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now we see that Jeremiah has been brought into another action sermon for the people to see that God is indeed God. 
So to make sure that everybody understood what he was doing, Jeremiah explained that he was publicly demonstrating that he believed God's wonderful promise. If God is saying this land is going to be possessed again by his people, then it's going to be possessed again by his people. So thus, he was clarifying his faith. What have we talked about before in the faith of of Jeremiah? He had a confident faith. There was a confirmation to his faith. And now there is a clarifying of his faith. God has now clarified why he told him to buy that land. Now someday in the future the Jews would again buy houses. They would buy fields and vineyards in the, prophet, in the promised land. Verse 15. So God would bring his people back to the promised land and they would resume their normal life and activities. So the people's captivity was going to be only temporary. How long? Seventy years. I don't know if you said that or not. I can't hear. But I kind of thought I heard something. So, seventy years. People's captivity is going to be temporary. They would return again to the land. But here's the lesson for us. There is a lesson for us here. There is to be an initiation on our part. In other words, that initiation is this. Acting in obedience to God's command. There is to be an initiation in our part before the Lord clarifies At least in this particular case, and many times in some cases that we deal with. Again, there is an initiation on our part. There is to be one before the Lord clarifies. So we need to act in obedience. In other words, it wasn't until Jeremiah bought the the, the field that the Lord told him why he was to do so. There will be times when God has us to do certain things and we need to do them by faith. And, but you know what, what's, what's wrong with us sometimes is we always want a clarification up front. Well, God, tell me why. And God has to sometimes say, I don't have to tell you why, just do what I'm asking you to do. Or do what I'm telling you to do, not so much asking. You know, God doesn't ask a lot of times. There are times when He does, but most of the time He tells. And it's okay for God to tell because God's God and we're not. So if God tells us to do something, you know what? Do it. But, you know, there's a problem when we're always, well, Lord, why? And don't ask God why. He'll tell you eventually. And even if he doesn't, you know, all things work together for good. God's going to be doing things for good, not for bad. So if God wants you to do something, do it. Be obedient. And then he'll tell you why. Or you may just discover why. Wow! You ever done that? I don't know, but God has brought me over 30-some years of just serving the Lord to a point where I just say, wow! I don't know what else to say. That's as theological as I can get. Wow! That's it. Because you see, God is awesome. Don't, don't ever say you're awesome or don't ever say anybody's awesome or any football team's awesome. Nobody's awesome. God's awesome. God alone is awesome. Because He does things, man, and we just like, wow! <clears throat> so practice that. Wow! You know, whatever. Because you're going to have to say it a lot. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, in a little, just a little statement, Paul says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, that sums it up. We walk by faith and not by sight. If we have to walk by sight, what are we saying? Clarify before. But Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And because we are to walk by faith and not by sight, the Lord may often tell us this. Listen carefully. 
God may oftentimes say, do as I tell you to do. And as you walk down the road, and time passes, and as events begin to unfold, you'll see my reason. You'll see my reason. Our failure to do this will cause us to miss what God wants to do in our lives because we refuse to obey until we see the reason. Ours is to step out in faith. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So we need to leave the timing and the reasons up to the Lord. Leave the timing and the reasons up to the Lord. But if the Lord commands you, and by the way, the Lord will command you to do things and not to do things. And you know, again, if we know God's Word, we're going to know there are things we don't do and there are things that we do. But when He commands you to do something or not to do something, then the timing and the reasons leave that up to the Lord. He'll clarify. The good thing is He always does at some point in time. That's why we can always look back to see what God has done. And then we can look forward and say, you know what, God did this over here and He's great. By the way, that's what Jeremiah is going to do right now. Look at verse 16. I'm going to read down through verse 25 and, and we're going to kind of close with this here because it's, it's really, you have to see the whole picture. So we're not, we're not going to stay uh, focused too much on one verse except verse 17. But verse 16 says, Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Listen, we used to sing this song 30 some years ago. Just a beautiful little chorus. But, but this, these are the words of Jeremiah. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Now keep that in mind. Because he goes on and he says, You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of your fa the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. To give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day. And in Israel and among other men. And you have made yourself a name, as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. What is he doing? He's recalling. He's rehearsing the things that God has already done. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror, you have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed. Uh-oh, we're starting to see a little turn here. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. The walls that were built up against the walls of Jerusalem so that they would just come in and attack. Eventually, it took them a year, but it would be there. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, 
buy the field for money and take witnesses. And yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Here's the challenge to his faith. Here's taking that challenge of his faith to the very brink of his life. It is here in this section of the chapter that we find that challenge to Jeremiah's faith. For as was often the case with Jeremiah and is often the case with us, a testing experience of doubt followed a triumphant experience of faith. Ah, Lord God, behold, Thou hast created the heavens and the earth by Thy great power and our stretched arm. There is nothing too hard for Thee. But you want me to buy a field? And take witnesses? And the city is given over to the Chaldeans? You see, Jeremiah obeyed God's command by faith, but now he's wondering how the Lord would ever give him his property. <laughs> because remember, he's still in prison. But what the prophet did was exactly the right thing to do. I'm not saying that doubt was the right thing to do. But what the prophet did was the right thing to do. And you know what that was? He prayed to God. He prayed to God. Isn't that profound? I mean, it's simple and yet profound. Why? Because how many people today who call themselves Christians will find themselves in, in, a, in, in a terrible situation and turn and run in all directions but not go to God? So does that mean that our worship is only theoretical and not practical? If we sing that He is a great God who can do all things and yet we are frightened at the first sign of pr trouble and trial... we run the other way? Jeremiah obeyed God's command by faith. And now he's wondering how the Lord would, would give him this, this property. But he prayed. Folks, he talked to God as, so as to handle his doubt. He talked to God so as to handle his doubt. He was honest with his feelings. You know, folks, we need to start being honest with our feelings before God. I'm not talking just amongst ourselves. I'm saying before God, be honest with your feelings. Jeremiah was honest with his feelings, and then he waited for the Lord to give him his message from God's Word. And so as in verses 17 through 19, true prayer begins with worship, and focuses on God's greatness. You see, no matter how great our problems are, no matter how great the troubles are that we may face, no matter how great they are, God is greater. And the more that we see His greatness, <clears throat> wow, I mean, it'll sound like that in a while. The more we see His greatness, the less threatening 
our problems will appear and become. Another aspect of true prayer involves remembering what the Lord has done in the past and how He kept His promises and met the needs of the people even in dire circumstances. Goes all the way back to Egypt. And he remembers what God did in Egypt. He rehearses this before God as if God needs us to rehearse everything that He's done. But you know what? It isn't for God, it's for us. It was for Jeremiah to remember, God, you brought the people out of Egypt. You delivered them out of the hand of the Pharaoh. You took them through the wilderness experience, even 40 years. And you brought their descendants into the land of promise. You're God, and nothing is too hard for you. So let's face it. Even in rehearsing the previous events of God's greatness, there was a besieging army of Babylonians outside the city. Inside the city was what? There was famine, there was disease, and there was disobedience. And in Jeremiah's heart, there was a questioning of his faith. So he went from confidence to confirmation to clarification of faith, but even a questioning, a nagging doubt that he had made a fool of himself But we're going to leave that right here with God's reply. And this is where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to leave it here tonight, right here, with verses 26 and 27. Because uh, you know, I, like to, I like to leave you all with, 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 a, with a good encouraging note. And here's the encouraging note. is verses 26 and 27. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You see, already just that enough is an answer. Jeremiah says, I don't know, but God says, oh, let me tell you. And the Lord came, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, and folks, this is the answer for everything in life and every circumstance and trial. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard? For me. And now, we're the ones who have to remember. That's why I say the rehearsing, the recalling, the remembering is not for God, it's for us. If we were to find a little bit of a whisper from God to Jeremiah, it would probably sound like this Hey, Jeremiah, in your prayer, didn't you just say that nothing's too hard for me? Ah, Lord God, behold, Thou hast created the heavens and the earth with Thy great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for You. Well, guess what, Jeremiah? That's the answer. And you already knew it. Now you've got to believe it. I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Struggling with your faith? You struggling with your trust in the Lord? Even in our good and long and complete study of the book of Jeremiah, we're going to be reminded 
Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Let's pray.